well positioned is your baby in your uterus? How low is your baby in your uterus? How much pressure is that head putting on your cervix? Because that's the thing that creates dilation. My house is messy. I see other moms look so much happier when I look at social media, like they all have the stories in their heads about how they're inadequate as a wife, as a mother. This question comes up so often. People are so worried about Kegels. I'm Cynthia Overgaard, owner of Hypnobirthing of Connecticut, childbirth advocate, and postpartum support specialist. And I'm Trisha Ludwig, certified nurse midwife and international board-certified lactation consultant. And this is the Down to Birth Podcast. Childbirth is something we're made to do, but how do we have our safest and most satisfying experience in today's medical culture? Let's dispel the myths and get down to birth. Hello, and welcome to our monthly Q&A episode on this beautiful October day. How are you, Trisha? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. I know you wanted to start by sharing an experience you had at a home birth you attended a couple days ago. Yes, I thought this would be interesting to share because we've been getting a lot of questions through Instagram and through the podcast talking about fundal massage, and we've been talking about the use of Pitocin and fundal massage and saying how that... Um, the evidence actually doesn't support that the use of fundal massage in combination with Pitocin is necessary. So fundal massage is the practice of taking your hand post-birth and putting it on top of the uterus to one, check that the fundus is firm and two, massage it if it is not. So it's a technique for helping to slow down the bleeding after birth and making sure that the fun, the uterus is doing its job of contracting. So you're massaging the top of the uterus to make sure it's contracting. This is, this is, you know, baby's born placenta's out. Now we're, we're monitoring the mother for bleeding. And in most cases, mothers are getting a shot of Pitocin or they've had Pitocin in their IV because they had an IV and it's already, you know, maybe they were getting induced or augmented and they've had Pitocin on board. If they have not, they might be getting an intramuscular injection in the thigh of Pitocin to help manage the bleeding. Now, if they are not getting that Pitocin, you might use fundal massage to help slow down the bleeding and make the uterus contract. If you have been given the Pitocin, the evidence does, the evidence says that you don't need to do both. So that's what we've been talking about. Now I was at a birth this past weekend. And it happened to be one of your past hypnobirthing clients that you taught her. That's she was, right. This was her third baby, but you taught her hypnobirthing um, with her first. And I knew that when I walked in the room, cause she had all the hypnobirthing mantras posted around the room. And I was like, I bet this is one of Cynthia's clients. Telltale sign. Yes. Now she was in labor. So I didn't obviously ask her, but we talked about it later. <laughs> um, anyway, I wanted to share this because this was a case where fundal massage became necessary even after Pitocin. And I would not have felt comfortable not doing anything in this situation. So she had her baby, beautiful birth, and um, placenta came out within like 15 minutes. Everything was looking fantastic, you know, skin to skin with the baby. She was bleeding pretty heavily and it, uh, it went on for a while. It would stop and then it would come back. And then it would stop and it would come back. And finally, after an hour, almost, we decided to give her Pitocin. Um, she ended up actually getting two rounds of Pitocin in the thigh and she was still bleeding. So at this point we were using the 
the lead midwife, I was the birth assistant at this birth. She was using her hand to really make sure that fundus was contracting. And the fundal massage became necessary because there were clots forming in the top of her uterus that were not being pushed out, even with the Pitocin and the fundal massage became necessary to get those clots out so that the uterus could actually contract. How did you know there were clots? Because um, when she would massage the uterus, they would come out. (laughs) These large clots would come out. And if you have clotting in there that's stuck in the top of the uterus or anywhere in the uterus, it can't properly contract. So I just wanted to share the story as an example of this is why you need a skilled provider. And even though in general, the evidence does not say that you need to do fundal massage if you've had Pitocin, when you have abnormal bleeding, even with Pitocin on board, you're going to do what is necessary to stop the bleeding. And that may sometimes be fundal massage. And it was necessary in this case. That's great. It's interesting how the universe handed you that experience right after we've been getting all these questions. Right after talking about it. And this, this, you know, this mom, she just kept using her hypno birthing mantras to help her body, you know, stop the bleeding. I mean, if she had had one more round of bleeding, we would have been transferring um, for a postpartum hemorrhage, but she was very focused and determined. And that was it. After that little round of the second dose of Pitocin and the fundal massage, the clots were all out and she barely bled a drop again after that. That's great. Yeah. Beautiful birth. Oh my gosh. Her family was amazing. She had sisters and mother and mother-in-law and cousins and father. Oh, how wonderful. I pulled up in the driveway and there were about 10 cars in the driveway. I'm like, what is going on here? (laughs) You better learn how to give birth if you're going to give birth with that many people around you. It's beautiful. Better learn how to go within. That Mm -hmm. is beautiful. Um, Yeah. It's just another good example of how it's so tempting when people start learning from us that they want to say, well, so is Pitocin bad? So is it bad to be induced? And you want, or should I do fundal massage or not? You know, yes or no. And it's complex. And even Pitocin, I mean, we are big advocates for not on having an unnecessary induction and not having Pitocin unnecessarily. And in, I believe in one week, we're publishing a whole episode dedicated to Pitocin. There's a lot to learn about it and understand, but you do have these situations where it is absolutely necessary. So we always want to be open and receptive to every single intervention like cesarean section. The big question is, you know, you don't want an unnecessary and you want to have the, the interventions if, and when they're needed. That's why education is important so that you can help to know when it really is needed. And I think, and I think it just, reemphasizes how important it is to have that trust in your provider. You know, you, it isn't black and white. It isn't like, don't touch the fundus. If you had the Pitocin right in this situation, it, it took the knowledge and experience of a skilled provider to know the best way to manage this. It's not from purely from research and the science and the, you know, uh, randomized controlled trials. You take your personal experiences and your wisdom and your intuition and you put it all together to make the situation work. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed like appropriate given how much we've been talking about that. Yeah. Well, we even got another question this week about whether fundal massage was necessary. So we can refer them back to, um, our last Q and a episode along with the comments that you just made. I think that kind of covers it probably because it's hard to say yes or no. Is it necessary? 
it just shouldn't be routine, I guess, is always the takeaway, right? Exactly. Right, right, right. Had this mother not been bleeding in that way, then the fundal massage would not have been necessary. But it became necessary based on the clinical picture. And that's when the birthing mother can go from believing she doesn't want something like fundal massage to being grateful for it because she recognizes it is necessary or beneficial. And that's how I think we really should feel when we have intervention. If you're feeling grateful for the intervention you're about to have, it's because you know that it's necessary. You believe it is. Right. I will also say that in that moment, she did not care what the risks of Pitocin injection were. So in trying to give her informed consent, she was basically like, stop talking and give me the shot. Because? Because she knew that that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, She knew she was going to the hospital if we didn't take the next step. So all the risks of getting the Pitocin injection went out the window. It didn't matter. The risk of going Uh to the hospital to her was too great. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. So what's on the agenda? All right. So, well, we got a wonderful review and that I thought was really sweet and wanted to read it. Um, before we get into our questions. So I will start with that. This review, uh, came in from Laura Rogers and she she, and I actually just saw it this morning and I was like, oh, I'm going to read that. She says, cannot get enough exclamation point of us. <laughs> I think of the podcast. I guess that's us. Too. That's us. <laughs> okay. She cannot get enough of us. Um, I'm midway through my second pregnancy following an extremely hard and unsatisfying first birth experience. And listening to this podcast has been a balm for my heart. My fears and frustrations from the past have been validated and my trust in and awe of my body and its inherent wisdom and design is at an all-time high. Love that. Every concern or question I have is covered in some episode in a way that is helpful and clear and reassuring. I only wish I had discovered this wealth of knowledge the first time around, but as I plan a redemptive and healing second birth, I know I will be able to make peace with my trauma and enjoy my next birth in a whole new way. Thanks to these two women. So nice of her Thank to you. take the time to do that and let us hear her her positive thoughts. So sweet. Beautiful. Um, I hope we hear about her pregnancy. I hope we hear about her birth now. All right. So let's get to our question, shall we? We shall. All right. First question of the morning begins. Hi, ladies. I love your podcast. You give me so much education and empowerment. Thank you. I had a question. I have been trying to conceive since March after going off the pill and so far have been unsuccessful. I do have PCOS and had expected this to be an issue. You speak a lot about using a midwife during pregnancy and birth. Is there such thing as using a midwife or somebody other than my OBGYN for the conceiving process? My sister is currently pregnant and uses the same OBGYN who, long story short, scheduled a C-section for her at 39 weeks because the baby was too big. Based on the experience of my sister is based on the experience my sister is having with her. I am uneasy about continuing to work with her. I have only ever gone to her for thus far for annuals. Any advice on trying to conceive without an OBGYN? What do you think she means by saying conceiving without an OBGYN? Do you think she, she doesn't mean fertility. She means, (laughs) I mean, I conceived without an OBGYN. You definitely don't need an OBGYN. My husband isn't an OBGYN. So yeah. No, seriously. Not necessary do you think- to be in the room. Um, no, I, yes. Be- I, I do believe that's what she means. Cause she says she has PCOS and she has been unsuccessful since March after getting off the pill. So she's talking about getting some support with getting but pregnant. Wouldn't she go to a fertility 
specialist for that rather than well, maybe a not necessarily yet. Usually, you know, people wait six or 12 months before they go for any type of fertility consult. I know, but what I'm saying is what could an OBGYN even do if someone is trying to conceive, what can an OB even do in that process to be supportive? You don't, what could they do to make conception go more smoothly for her? Well, they might give her, they could give her, OBGYNs can also do very, very basic um, first line fertility things, give some hormones to help support fertility. Uh, um, I think that's what she's meaning. Like, do I need to have an OBGYN or can a midwife also help me in the process of conceiving? I would say that if you have PCOS and you are having trouble getting pregnant, then I would see a women's health specialist who has natural methods of supporting fertility, like maybe a naturopath who specializes in women's health or a midwife who specializes in women's health and can offer you some supplements, do some hormone testing, see what's out of balance and what can be rebalanced. There's lots of herbs and supplements that are naturally supportive of fertility. And you don't necessarily need to go to a fertility specialist at this point. And your OBGYN might offer you hormones or some hormonal testing, but a midwife or a naturopath can do that as well. I think that's a great idea. A naturopath specializing in fertility is an excellent idea because that's where I would begin. They're holistic providers. They're not going to just see one thing like just herbs or just nutrition and they can look at blood tests and they can, they can provide so much, but acupuncture also has an extremely high rate of fertility success. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and they also can prescribe Chinese herbs if you're interested in herbs. Yep. So yeah, definitely add acupuncture to that list. And you're also mentioning that you're not feeling good about your sister's experience with this OBGYN and you are already feeling uneasy. So you might as well just cut the ties now, <laughs> go find a midwife. Um, and they absolutely can help you in the fertility process, at least in the early stages. When this woman wrote that her sister's baby um, was born by C-section because the baby was too big, she put too big in quotes, which tells you a lot about this uh, this woman who writing into us that she, that she didn't buy it. And hopefully her sister feels deeply at peace with all of her choices, but, um, clearly this wouldn't be the right provider for her because she used those quotation marks. We know that she has another opinion on the matter. So the right providers are out there to support you for sure. Get creative because more are out there than you might be aware of. So sometimes I meet people and I'm, I'm, you know, nutritionists who specialize in fertility or body workers who specialize in fertility. And there's a world out there. Yeah. There is a lot that can be done as far as conceiving and fertility before you go to, um, hormonal or in vitro or IVF or anything like that. So also, I just want this woman to know that if she does leave her OBGYN and go for a midwife, she can get her annuals done there as well. Midwives do provide the routine GYN care. Oh yeah. Birth control, the works. Yes. Breast exams, all of it, all of it. And you won't have to wear the little, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I won't do that. Then sometimes no, you do actually. So no paperweight. No, you do not. You never have to wear the gown. Don't ever put that on your body. Yeah. And just one final point I want to say about this is that stress is a significant inhibitor to conception. And I can't help but 
feel the need to say, just be really aware. I mean, Trisha was just talking about mantras and there, they seem like this unsubstantiated thing out there, but your beliefs really do direct what's going on in your body. So envision conception, feel excited for conception, be positive about conception while you're going and doing all of these things rather than repeating PCOS in your head or, um, and the, the language even that you used so far have been unsuccessful. And there might be another way to phrase that, right? Like my body is preparing to conceive, but I can't help but say, just be really mindful of how people speak to you and how you're speaking to yourself about this. So, uh, just get excited because all these things you're about to do to increase the likelihood of conception are things you haven't done before. So there's a lot of reason to shift your thinking into, um, a much more anticipatory, positive state. It, since stress is an inhibitor to conception, we know that our emotional state plays a very big role. Great point. Yes. Agree. All right. All right. What do we have next? Next question. You want to read it? Sure. Is it okay to labor in a living room and have to take the stairs after giving birth? If you birth at home, that's such a well, great I mean, question. Yeah. I love this one. No, um, it's not. <laughs> it's not okay to birth in the living room and have to take the stairs. I was sure you'd say yes and be careful. Nope. Look at this. Okay. Go ahead. It's okay to birth it. in your living room. It is not okay to take the stairs. So if you birth in your living room and I've had this happen many times, sometimes people just don't want to give birth in their bedroom. There's not enough space for a tub or whatever the reason it doesn't feel like the right space. They want to be in their living room. You must stay in your living room for the first 24 hours. So you have to bring an air mattress down there, some sort of bed for you to go into after the birth. And you cannot go up those stairs until at least 24 hours later. It's just too much. It's just what we advise at home birth. It's just a little too much to try to hike stairs after you've just given birth. You need because to, of bleeding. Yeah. And you're, you know, bleed, you tend to be weak and lightheaded and it's not safe. It's better to okay. just give your body some time to adjust and go up the stairs the next day. Um, and how soon Trisha can a woman skip steps going upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> and how soon can we run up the as stairs? As soon as you're ready to have sex again, whenever that may be. <laughs> okay. Oh, that'll be a while. Yeah. That'll be a while. Yeah. So no skipping stairs. But, be um, right. yeah, that's, that's a, that's a great question. So if you give birth at home in your living room, please be prepared to stay there for 24 hours. And that sounds comfortable. Now, that's my advice. I, I hope this doesn't discourage her from birthing in the living room. Sounds like she has a preference for that. So it's, it's not, that's not a tall order no. to just stay down it's, there for a day. It's really not. Sounds kind of cozy and fun. This could be a really special part of the, the story the experience. Sounds yeah, nice to I've me. seen lots of women do it. And they set up camp down there and sometimes they stay even for a few more days and you're close to the kitchen and that's nice too. All right. The next one says, when should I do Kegels postpartum? Trisha, we just taught our fourth trimester workshop and uh, a woman asked you that same question a couple of days ago at the workshop. That's right. This question comes up so often. People are so worried about Kegels. It's, it's, it doesn't matter. You can do the Kegel whenever you feel like doing a Kegel. When it feels good to do a Kegel, start Kegeling. You absolutely do not need to start doing them right after birth. You don't even need to do them in the first couple of days, but you can. You do probably want to start doing some Kegels at some point after birth. You do want to get your pelvic floor strength back, and Kegels are a great way to do that. But there's no rule about it. You might not even, even if you try to do a Kegel in the days or hours right after birth, you probably wouldn't be able to. So 
you can kind of test it out. And as you start being able to flex and contract those muscles again, then it's time to start building on that strength. Hey there, all you amazing, strong, and beautiful women, especially you new moms and moms-to-be. I'm Taylor, co-founder and CEO of Vitality. And I'm Taylor's sister, Chloe, co-founder and chief design officer. We started Vitality to encourage and empower everyone to live a vibrant life. We're all about supporting women, especially on the journey to motherhood. When I was pregnant, I really struggled to find comfy leggings that I could wear all day, every day. So we set out to make the best maternity pants out there. We took those pain points and designed pieces that were supportive and comfortable, including details like a high-rise fit, underbelly seam, raw cut hems, and to top it off, we have an embedded silicone panel that acts like a built-in suspension system for your low back, which is the first of its kind. So we designed this line in our Marshmallow Soft Cloud 2 fabric in not only a maternity pant, but a volley and biker short as well. Let me tell you, all of these pieces are a game changer. Just go to shopvitality.com. And cherry on top, you guys can use code down to birth at checkout to get 10% off your order. 10% off athleisure designed for pregnancy during pregnancy. Down to birth is sponsored by Postpartum Soothe. Recovering from a vaginal birth takes many women by surprise. Everyday activities like sitting, walking, and going to the bathroom can be uncomfortable. And Postpartum Soothe is just the remedy to support your healing and relieve discomfort. Postpartum Soothe is a 100% organic herbal blend that's applied to maternity pads in the days immediately following your birth, giving you all the benefits of a sits bath 24-7. That's because herbs like comfrey leaf, uva ursi, and witch hazel are known for their antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory properties. Postpartum Soothe can be prepared anytime during the third trimester, and it makes a beautiful baby gift. It's a must for any woman seeking a faster, easier recovery from a vaginal birth. Visit postpartumsoothe.com. That's postpartumsoothe, S-O-O-T-H-E.com, and use promo code down to birth. Did you know that 97% of women take a prenatal vitamin, yet 95% of us are still deficient in key nutrients for pregnancy and postpartum? After a long time searching for the optimal prenatal nutrition product, we bring you Needed a radically better prenatal vitamin. Needed's nutritional products offer nutrients that your body can utilize with doses at optimal versus bare minimum levels and are available in capsules and an easy-to-take vanilla powder, perfect for those moms with pill fatigue or nausea. Needed is a woman-founded company offering a superior nutritional product lineup backed by research, data, and insights from nearly 4,000 women's health experts. Needed offers premium supplements for every stage from egg quality support for women trying to conceive to lactation support for breastfeeding. And you know, Cynthia and I, we love their botanical sleep and relaxation support packets before bedtime. So if you are looking for a radically different prenatal, head on over to thisisneeded.com and enter down to birth for 20% off your first order. Yeah, after giving birth, even in in the days later, if you even think of a Kegel, just nothing happens. Yeah. You probably won't be able to do it. You'd be like, oh, I guess it's not time to Kegel yet. And then one day you'll do it and you'll be like, oh, I can kind of do it. So I guess I should start working on building that strength back. Right. So no rule there. Uh, the next one says, why do I sweat so much at night after having a baby? Is that a thing? 
Did people sweat? Did you, you don't remember sweating after I gave no, birth? not at all. Really? No night sweats? You didn't have to like ever change your nightgown? No, not at all. But I was always trending cold anyway, typically. But no, I definitely, I definitely didn't. I well, it's know. very common. Is it that common? Very it's common. not everyone though, right? I feel like it's most people, but it's clearly not everyone. If it didn't happen to you. <laughs> God, there's so many conversations where it's like, didn't happen to, didn't happen to me. Um, I, there's so, we have so many we're gonna have, conversations. We're gonna have to, like I didn't have morning sickness. I didn't vomit in transition. I didn't, there's so many stories where I'm this thorn in the conversation. <laughs> I'm like, really? I've never even heard of that. You've never had a PMS symptom. <laughs> oh, that's true. I don't PMS either. Yeah. I'm a little bit of a, anyway, I'm, I'm usually non-hormonal. Yeah. You are. You are. Let's, let's just, let's just put it this way. When I'm angry, there's a really good reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't lose hair. Remember that conversation? I never had hair fall out. That's you said wild. it was so common. I was like, yeah. hair falls out. I've heard people say that. So, um, it's, what did you just say? It's twofold. It's twofold. Well, one, I was going to say that we should, we'll have to pull our community on this and see how many women actually experience night sweats after having a baby. Cause it would be Great interesting idea. to see. Yes. And two, there's two reasons. One, right after you give birth, you have a lot of extra fluid on board from having been pregnant for nine months. And so your body is in a high mode of diuresis, meaning getting rid of extra fluid. So you pee a lot more and you sweat a lot more. And it particularly happens at night. It is also related to the changes, the massive shift in hormones related to breastfeeding. So as after you give birth, you have this rapid decline in progesterone and a rise in prolactin and night sweats are very, very common um, because of that hormonal shift. And it can last for weeks and it doesn't mean anything is wrong. It can be annoying. You might have to get up and change your nightshirt or nightgown or whatever you wear to bed. Um, sometimes women even have to change their sheets. It can be that much. How many days does, does that last? Is it just the day or two after giving birth? Or are you saying it's part of the whole no, it can fourth last trimester? For, it can last for weeks. I had no idea. Even months, but it won't necessarily happen every single night, but it is much more common in those early days because you're also getting rid of the extra fluid from being pregnant. All right. I'm going to throw a quick question on Instagram. You're pulling them right now. <laughs> I'm going to do it. Yeah. By the end of the episode, okay. we can say, we can, we can tell everyone what the results are. All right, cool. That'll be fun. Then we'll see just how unusual I am or <laughs> if maybe fewer women have night sweats than you think. So did your mom have any menopausal symptoms? No, none, not at all. Nothing. No, not oh. at all. Yeah. No, so I'm, that's I'm just your genetics. She doesn't yeah. have. Yeah. Um, just give me a minute. I'll get something up. All right. Done. Great. So we'll see in a little while what the people have to say about night sweats. <laughs> yes. That'll be fun to know. Okay, cool. All right. Next question. Is it, is it okay to take a bath once a woman's waters have released? Can I guess? Mm -hmm. It's fine. It's fine. Cause that's your water birth, right? It's fine. Yes. I mean, I think we give birth in water and our water is broken. Um, and there is actually, there has actually been a study done somewhere along the way to test, to see if any water gets up inside the uterus, if your water is broken and it doesn't, and we wouldn't expect it to. So yes, it is totally safe to take a bath if your water is broken, but you cannot have sex. If your water's no broken. sex, no matter how much you want to have sex, 
No, that sounds nothing like- in the vagina if your water is broken. It, well, you know what's funny about that? Like all the like all the things they hand like obstetricians and midwives putting their hands in a lot or rupturing membranes. They're putting plenty of things in there. Well, they believe that they're putting things in your vagina with purpose when they're doing a vaginal exam. But for the most part, we want to keep things out of the vagina if the water is broken, because every time we introduce anything into the vagina, we are increasing the risk of getting um, an infection inside the uterus or in labor. We don't want that. But water doesn't count as something that can get inside. No, because it doesn't go it doesn't ascend into your uterus. It doesn't go up and into your uterus. All right. Let's see what's next. This is, uh, this is a question from one of my clients, Trisha, and I told her you are going to be in a better position to answer it than I. And the question is for women with scoliosis or spinal fusion, what are the best positions for giving birth? Um, I mean, I guess it depends on the severity of things and what their mobility is like. Um, sideline would be a great option. I'm sure that they would be most comfortable in a sideline position. All fours, hands and knees might also work well. So is giving birth. She also says is giving birth for these women similar to those without these conditions. And I would say, yeah, pretty much it is unless it is, well, she said scoliosis, spinal fusion. So those can be two different things, but unless it's really affecting the tailbone and there is lack of mobility in the coccyx or the tailbone that could impact things because that tailbone does need to be able to move out of the way as the baby comes through, but the rest of your spine really isn't that involved in the birth process. You know, it affects your mobility, your own positioning, but you can give birth on your side. You can be in hands and knees. Um, you probably don't want to be on your back because that's not the best position in general. And it's probably the least comfortable. Even squatting might work. So there really isn't any big difference. I don't think that there is, but unless it's low in the low lumbar or tailbone area, that would just potentially make it a little bit more difficult as the baby comes through. Cause that tailbone does need to have mobility to move out of the way. In that case, I would say probably definitely hands and knees or sideline is going to take some pressure off the spine. All right. What accounts for the variations in how long women are in labor? Why does this vary so much among women? Many reasons for that. Yeah. Yeah. There's no simple. So let's name them all. Well, the, um, the first thing, the first thing I just want to say that I've said a million times is because childbirth is an art and it's not a science, just like you can have sex for five minutes or you can have sex for an hour and a half, you know, it's an art, but there are factors that do go into this. So Trisha, want to start naming the first ones right. coming to the top of your mind? Well, the first thing that accounts for variations in how long women are in labor are whether they are first time birthing mother or subsequent babies. So first time labors almost always take longer than subsequent. Finding the perfect pregnancy and breastfeeding bra is no easy task. Your search is now over. Meet Davin and Adley, a mother-owned pumping, nursing, and maternity bra company with a unique, comfortable, and stylish cropped cami. This item is perfect to wear all day long from day one of your pregnancy right through the end of your breastfeeding journey and probably beyond. The Amelia cami makes pumping and breastfeeding easy while looking and feeling good on your body. It works seamlessly for both wearable pumps and flange pumps, and you can breastfeed in it. It also has a beautiful stretch lace back. You can sleep in it, dress up in it, go out in it, whatever you want to do in it. 
And trust us, the quality in this item and all of their items are top notch. They're soft, durable, and attractive. These bras will truly go the distance. Davin and Adley carry a gorgeous selection of maternity and nursing wear, and they have an innovative one-piece breast pad that we've never seen anywhere else. So no more losing those solo breast pads, ladies. Go ahead and check out the full collection of maternity and nursing items at davinandadley.com and use your promo code down to birth to save 15%. All right, breastfeeding moms. Do you want to know one of our all-time favorite items for your nursing journey? If you know us, you probably could guess it. Yep, it's the Silverette Nursing Cup. These little nipple heroes not only protect, but also heal because they're made of real silver. It is naturally antimicrobial, antifungal, and anti-inflammatory. These little cups will be your best friend in the early sensitive weeks of breastfeeding your baby. And our favorite part is they last literally forever. You can pass them on just like you would a favorite piece of jewelry. Head on over to silverettusa.com and use promo code down to birth to save 15%. Not me, the grand exception again. <laughs> I did it again. Remember? Your second my, birth was longer than your first. My, my, from the moment I woke up, Eric, and said, I don't think I'm in labor, but don't go to work today, I was holding Alex three hours and one minute later. And then my labor with Vanessa had a more nebulous start. I wasn't a hundred percent sure when I called Amy, I was like, I'm not sure I'm in labor, but I called her. And then I had Vanessa about five and a half hours after that. So yeah, my second labor was longer because I'm the big anomaly here. Hmm. Well, okay. Yeah. Isn't that funny? So it's not always, it, especially it, when the first birth is so short, it's yeah. hard to top. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. Um, and you had an unusually short first birth. That's unusually yes. short. But yes, you're you're right. Statistically, it's far more common for the second for a subsequent baby to, to come, come more quickly. So what else goes into this? Um, okay. The mother's position definitely goes into it. Epidural use is known to slow labors because it makes labor a little less efficient. Fetal positioning is probably one of the big ones. How low is your baby in your uterus? How much pressure is that head putting on your cervix? Because that's the thing that creates dilation is the head the pressure of the head on the cervix. So if the head is not engaged well in the pelvis and not putting even good pressure on your cervix, you're going to dilate more slowly. So fetal positioning is probably the second most important thing. Next would be the mother's ability to be upright and mobile. You know, if, if she's not able to move sufficiently to help her baby get into the best position, that can slow labor. And that's one of the reasons that epidurals slow down labor. Then you just have genetics, right? I mean, it's just the way our bodies work, it, it, our body, our bodies all function so differently. It varies a lot. Nobody can say, and you know, there's no real predictability to it. You can't look at a woman and be like, you're going to have a fast birth. You're going to have a long birth. Certainly not. And the final point is, this is why we just don't want to worry about it. You want to put your focus on, in, you know, your position, baby's position, but mainly the best thing you can do is to not think about how long labor will last or what labor will feel like, but how you will respond, how you will keep yourself in a relaxed state so that you can dilate more comfortably and easily. And outside of the external variables, like your position, your baby's position, medication use, epidural, all that stuff, we can't neglect the emotional piece. And if you haven't heard Cynthia's mini episode on how fear affects labor, that would be great to listen to because our mental state 
and the environment that creates our mental state, whether we feel safe or not safe where we're giving birth can absolutely have a major um, impact on length of labor. Episode 110. 110. All right. Is it okay to drink a cup of coffee every day throughout pregnancy? Well, she, do you think she means caffeinated? Is that, oh yeah, presume? Yeah. Yes, she definitely means caffeinated because otherwise, why would she be asking? I mean, if it's not because I guess I'm asking because I can't tell the difference between caffeinated and uncaffeinated coffee. Can you? <laughs> can you? What? Of course. Can I, you? How caffeine it, doesn't affect me much. Yeah, no, you know, no. Caffeine so I don't really me. notice. Oh, caffeine. I could, uh, yes, I would definitely. Yes, and decaffeinated coffee doesn't even taste good. Hmm. All right. If you put enough cream and sugar in it, I guess it does. I only, you with know, a I, scoop of ice cream, it's great, Trisha. I like my coffee like I like my wine. It needs to be robust, pure, black, flavorful. No cream and sugar. Don't ruin it with that. All right. Okay. Anyway, general consensus is that, yes, you can drink coffee in pregnancy. At one point, I believe there was even some some information out there that said up to five cups a day was safe. Now, what is safe, right? What are we looking at? What are we evaluating? More recently, there has been some information and ACOG actually has a position on caffeine consumption in pregnancy and says that moderate caffeine consumption, which would equate to less than 200 milligrams per day or about two cups of of coffee, does not seem to appear to have any um, impacts on the baby. Mostly what they're looking at is miscarriage and intrauterine growth restriction. So I think I would say, and, and as a midwife, I have, you know, told my clients that it, small amounts of caffeine consumption seem to be safe in pregnancy. But if you don't want to even worry about it or risk it, then switch. There are lots of good coffee alternatives out there today. Have a little chai. There's so many healthy ones. There's so many great ones. You can do mushrooms. And- you, right. Mushrooms. I have chaga. You can do... Um, All right. Some results are already coming in on Instagram through our poll about whether women have experienced night sweats. And it seems it's about a two to one ratio. See, so I'm not that unusual that I haven't so far about a third have not experienced it and two thirds have. So uh, everything we've said so far is still accurate. You said it's very common. Um, (laughs) and I'm just showing I'm not the only soul on earth who hasn't experienced it. Let's, let's give it a little more time. Those, those ratios often change. You think it's going to change? It's going to be like 95% to 5%. I don't know. It'll be really, it'll be really interesting to see. I'm curious. All right. I bet it, I bet it ends up being around three quarters. Yes. One quarter. No. Okay. All right. Well, that's it for our questions, but I just want to share something um, with you, Trisha, and with our listeners from the postpartum support group on Tuesday morning. We have one of our podcast listeners who joined that support group. But she was speaking so openly and articulately about her struggles. And I jotted down some of what she said, and I just wanted to share it here so that, you know, everyone can just get a little window into how many women feel postpartum. This is what I jotted down. I feel like such a failure and such a burden, and I feel like I should be doing more, but I can't. My sister had multiple 10 pound babies and I couldn't birth my own seven pound baby on my own and I can't keep a clean house, and I feel like a failure. I love my kids, and I will never deny that, but why is it so taboo to just admit I feel like shit? When you have to hide your thoughts and feelings, it just tears you down, knowing you have to bottle it all up. I think society thinks you're going to be in a state of bliss or depression, 
And the truth is for the vast majority of women, they're somewhere in that scale or they're feeling both things concurrently. And just if, and, and if things are looking really great on, on the exterior, such as the house being perfectly clean and the woman being put together, that does not mean that she's feeling that way inside either. You know, there, a lot of women portray that externally, but are feeling equally as challenged inside this woman is actually being a lot more vulnerable and open and real by reaching out and, and saying this. So I give her a lot of credit. Yeah. And also just this whole idea of, I can't keep a clean house. There was another woman in the group who's been with us for months. She's awesome. And she was like, Oh, you got to let that go. She's a toddler and two twins. They're all like two and under actually the twins are one and the toddler is two, but she's like, you've got to let that go. And it doesn't mean your house will be messy forever, but we judge ourselves so harshly by the house being untidy. I don't know. There's just um, basically the theme of the day in our group this week was that it wasn't conscious, but the women just kept naming areas they were feeling inadequate. My house is messy. I see other moms look so much happier when I look at social media, like they all have the stories in their heads about how they're inadequate as a wife, as a mother, as a homemaker whatever it is as breastfeeding. That was another one. Of course, perception is not truth, right? How we see things is not how they actually are most of the time. And especially if you're using social media as the, as the gauge, I mean, nobody is putting their dirty rooms and messy life on social media. Everybody is putting only what they want to portray. If you go on social media and it brings up feelings of comparison that make you feel inadequate or less worthy or less capable, instead of inspired, get off it. The only thing that it's good for is to inspire and educate. Unfollow any of those accounts or put it away. That is doing you no good because it's not even real. Right. And it's a false sense of connection. Oh, for sure. There's You're nothing not social about no. it. If things are social when you're looking in someone's eyes when you're in their space, when you're, it's one, it's unilateral for one, it isn't social. It's, it's not an exchange at all of a it relationship. Can, it sometimes can be, I mean, that's, you know, we're working on building that in our community and people do meet people through social media and develop healthy relationships. I mean, like scrolling through people's pages. Scrolling? No, that is not, no. Yeah, that's not it. And I think you just, you have to check in with yourself and go, is this helping me or is this hurting me? What feeling is it bringing up in you? And if it's bringing up that feeling of comparison and judgment of yourself and feeling less worthy, then it is not good for you. Put it away for a while. Thanks for joining us at the Down to Birth Show. All of Cynthia's classes and Trisha's breastfeeding services are held live online, serving women and couples everywhere. You can email us at contact at downtobirthshow.com or follow us on Instagram at downtobirthshow. Please remember this information is made available to you for educational and informational purposes only. It is in no way a substitute for medical advice. For our full disclaimer, visit downtobirthshow.com slash disclaimer. Thank you for tuning in and as always, hear everyone and listen to yourself. That's a really beautiful thing. She's from Minnesota. Oh, good Midwestern girl. <laughs> I knew you'd love that. Lord knows there aren't any bad ones. <laughs> no, they don't <laughs> exist.